0: Well hello everyone, this is Sean O'Byrne for the Readings Podcast, talking today with Helen Garner. She's the author of five novels, a book of screenplays and six books of non-fiction. And text publishing have just put together two new collections. One of her short stories, called Simply Stories, and the other one of her essays, called True Stories. So, hello Helen and welcome. Thank you. Um, in thinking about your work, I, and, and working through the books, I was thinking that, that, that it sets a kind of test. It hides less, you hide less. So it seems to ask in return that anyone who talks about it has to hide a bit less. So I want to say in a more open way, maybe than usual, I need your writing because you give me something different to the over-organised left and the over-organised right, to any thought orthodoxy. From monkey group to the first stone to the spare room to this house of grief, you give something more disorderly, more various, made from what sense and emotion give before it's organized away. But also when I think about it, I have to admit that I, I find it frightening. I wanna stay in, I realized more and more as I was reading through the books and they were causing me a kind of anxiety. I wanna stay in the over-organization, in the usual blocks of thought or, uh, that we make. And I think that there must be something especially dangerous Nervous making in living as close to observation first observation first emotion as you do And I wanted to ask about the pleasures the nervousnesses of the habit and the discipline of, of close
1: observation when you talk about n- nervousness and anxiety that, that interests me because uh, I, I Felt relieved when you said that because mm-hmm. I a- actually feel those things myself a lot and I uh, I find, um, especially writing those books, the, the three books about, uh, well, the two books really, the Joe Chingwei book and, and, um, and the Robert Farquharson trial book, they, they both took a hell of a lot out of me in a way that I didn't understand at the time, and I still probably don't understand. But I, I, I was um, shocked by uh, the long term effect of those. Uh, exposures of myself to strange processes and painful stories, and I, I, I I've got a habit of um, uh, sort of putting myself down about this, thinking, God, what a wimp! You know, here I am, this um, now well-off, established middle-class writer, you know, sitting on my fat ass, and and uh, and I'm complaining because I'm well, not complaining, but I'm I'm sort of saying how nerve wracked I have been by these. Story. So it's always been a great relief to me to find that other people who've witnessed the the, the trials um, have been traumatised by them as well. Um, that made me feel less of a wimp. I don't want to be a wimp. And and I, I, I spend a lot of my time looking back, especially on, on that book, True Stories, seeing that I've put myself in situations where... Uh, one might easily wimp out, like going to the morgue or uh, going to the crematorium. And uh, I'm trying to uh, strip off defensive habits, I suppose, when I, and and that's one reason why I really, really like uh, using a notebook, because if I'm in a situation, especially in a public place, where I'm watching somebody or listening to somebody, I, those moments to me are um, incredible um, treasures. I mean, they're things that I cherish. Those moments where you see in a flash into somebody else's life. You don't know who that person is. You're never going to see them again. And yet the the emotion that they're feeling hits you like a train coming down a track. And, um, to, to turn away in those moments seemed to me to be incredibly um, ungrateful to, to the fate that throws them into my path. Uh, and I, I, I yeah those are things I feel quite strongly. Do, do you have
0: a story that you tell yourself about why you're, why, you have, why you're able to have so much faith in what is immediately presented to you? One of the things that struck me was the rest of us we'll always just latch to, push ourselves into, like amounts of already organized thought. We'll mm-hmm. just do that again and again, most, not to be too summary, but it seems to me almost everybody lives amongst cliche. Yeah. Like business cliche, or even in the, even quite in their personal life, it's a, it's a collection of sort of ideas which have been pretty securely prepared before. Mm. It's extraordinary the extent to which you don't do that, and you seem to have found this way, notebook to notebook, to to just keep interrupting what everybody else is thinking and what you're thinking, and it does seem to be your faith in in the close closely observed in the episode that saves you from.
1: Yeah. Well, well, I should say now that um, we're doing this interview in um, quite close to Melbourne University, which is a site of, for me, um, intense embarrassment <laughs> and shame. I, I was a terrible student, so what I'm—I mean, I got—I I crawled out of the university. I had a third-class degree in, in uh, English and French, and I. I understood when I was a student that I, I'm really just not the scholarly type. I, I tried to do philosophy, I tried to do history, but I just didn't get it. I, I didn't. Um, whereas if, if I was sitting in a class that was about language, or about poetry, or, or, or books, I, I felt, um, uh, you know, I, my mind could function in in that.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, but when it, come, when it comes to, you know, what you rightly call organised thought, I'm just hopeless. I can't pick it up. I don't grasp it. I don't remember it afterwards. And I'm hopeless about history and I'm hopeless about politics. I mean, you know, I've got opinions like everybody else about, about politics and, and, of course, there's the, that's the whole other matter of feminism. We'll get to that in a minute. But, mm-hmm. but uh, I have never um, ha- had... A structure of ideas that I could, um, that I understood, and that I could repose upon, and that protected me from anything. of yeah. Following your thought.
0: That's interesting. I, what, going back to before, what makes me nervous, but what I also recognise as really necessary, is how much you can get done against an organised system. What you've done over and over in. The First Stone or in Joe Chinque's Consolation is you've gone back to an established amount of thought, say, the radical left or uh, a left liberal progressive bureaucracy, and by just noticing and by just recognising your first emotion, you've been able to say that to what would be thought of pretty good systems, there's something you don't see. I insist there's something you don't notice enough and I can see it. So the method of small observation seems to me extraordinarily powerful in reminding organized systems of some of the, the things that they have forgotten. So say in Jo Chin Kuei's consolation, you saw just because you sat and looked that the like the whole orthodox court system in a way had lost its proper sense of how much somebody should be punished and how much people who were suffering need to be comforted and you saw that using your method and it seemed to me the whole court system didn't.
1: That's true but I don't know that I was ever, that I ever had that in mind when I was doing it. I mean I just, um, I guess I'm saying that I work a lot off um, instinct and immediate response to things. which. I'm trying to think about this. I hate using all this, I mean, I'm, I'm, going, I'm trying to avoid the word gendered. Right. But uh, I, I think that, um, yeah. that, that one can say, perhaps, that women are really good at noticing small things. I, uh, and and it, it's um, necessary for our survival to notice small things and tiny things, and a, a, a sudden change in expression in someone's face, or yeah. a, a sudden movement. I mean, women go through the world needing to protect themselves and um, this is the first time this has ever occurred to me, actually. So that when you you're sitting, in a, in, in a court, there's this incredible display of those types of things happening. Uh, it's a fight. You know, a, a trial is this it, this sort of battle that's taking place within very, very severely constrained um, structures. And perhaps that's what I love the most about being in a court, is how it's supposed to be a place of reason, and that's what it prides itself on, and indeed it must. But it's constantly being kind of exploded, and little little bombs are going off all day long in in that room. And people are trying to deal with the, the sort of fallout from these emotional explosions. And if you're sitting there, alone, mm. that's another thing, you know, being by yourself and not having, uh, I mean, I'm not an employee, I'm not employed by a newspaper, yeah. I'm not employed by a magazine, I'm just sitting there, and if I feel that I, what I'm thinking and feeling isn't going anywhere, or if it's useless, I can get up and walk out, you know, I'm, I don't have to do it, so I'm, I'm sort of not um, trapped in that way. I, I don't. I'm not like the journalists who have to come up with something, yes. and so they necessarily have to fall back on because they're working at great speed and under great pressure.
0: No, that's true. One journalist in ten thousand wouldn't have been able to see. Just wouldn't have been permitted to see what you saw in the Farquharson trials. Yeah, they would have been told by their editor not to pay attention.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah attention exactly. To. But then you see what then they do is uh, I don't know if they do this anymore, but um, there's this, there's, they have the reporting. The reporter who's in the court, he comes back with the facts, and then they have someone else they send in to do what they call colour, which is um, you know looking at the expressions on. I mean, did they cry? Yeah. Uh, what was she wearing? Yeah. You know that kind of stuff. But um, if, uh, if 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 I can sit there like a sponge and soak up all of that on, on, on every level. Yeah. Then I come away with a lot of stuff that uh, that uh, I, I have to find a way to shape and use but, but there's nobody there's nobody telling me I'm suddenly remembering one of my many husbands used to say to me he used to say, how it's no listen it's no, There's no use having all of those feelings Whatever the situation was that we were talking about and I and I, and I was, you know I thought, "What are you talking about? Yeah, that, turned mean, out to be,
0: that turned out to be the wrong bet. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's interesting
0: what you said before. I, I, I want to be careful about this too, because you can hang too much on gender and you can hang too much on generation. Mm. But it did strike me that the way you are you, if I can put it like that, must have, has something to do with this. It reminded me of something that you said about Thea Astley when you first met her and got a chance to talk to her and read her books, that she seemed to come from a generation where the idea that a woman would say so much was sort of so outrageous, and that did shape the way in which she did say what she had to say. I think that there's a kind of perverse gift in that you came of age at a time where the rest, kind of restrictions that operated upon Thea Astley no longer operated, but on the other hand, you weren't immediately welcomed into the men's thought system. So there you are, able to be included, but also, like in some special and useful way, set aside,
1: yeah. on the side. Yeah.
0: And and, and you yeah. got to work.
1: Well, of course, back in when I first started, people used to say, oh, but she's, she works so, on, she works on a small canvas. It's small scale. Yeah. It, there's a smallness factor that was co- constantly being pointed out to me, and not only by men either. I mean, when I, after I published Monkey Grip, and then I went away and was in Paris for, I don't know, five minutes or something, and when I came back, uh, the next, and I published my next book, which was still set in sort of, kitchens and bedrooms of Carlton Houses yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Summers, we expressed, she reviewed the book, and she was very disappointed and said, "You couldn't, you can't tell what she's been to Paris, you know I mean yeah, it's it's a, is why is she still writing about all this small stuff? Why isn't everything getting bigger? And I, I felt terribly disheartened by that, but there was nothing I could do about it, you know, because I just didn't have the equipment to um, <clears throat> and I didn't even know what the equipment was to be able to write about whatever it was they thought I should be writing about.
0: And to tell more of than just the gender, a gender story or a generation story, I do think what you do is part of a long and sort of extraordinarily valuable tradition. Um, as I was reading through some of the nonfiction I thought of uh, of George Orwell and George Orwell saying that a modern literary intellectual lives and writes in constant dread, not really of public opinion in the wider sense, but of public opinion within their own group, that it's harder to go up against what could be called inner city people, yeah? The good left of the inner city. Yeah. One of the things I, I honour you for is the extent to which you've done that. I think that you get into the, into the more educated part of the city and you're so grateful to be there. The ways in which you turn orthodox for that is really dangerous and it's very hard to find a writer who really just have the sheer guts to get up and tell the best educated and most progressive part of the inner city system, listen, you're getting something really wrong. You are flat wrong about this. You have become either too hardened or you're not being hard enough and you've done it again and again. And it must be, again, like as Orwell says, one of the most difficult things to do as a professional writer because in a way you're turning on your own people or you're the people who are supposed to be your people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's quite sort of lonely, that position. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, the heroic solitary and all that kind of bullshit, but I, I never kind of... Um, well, you know, feminism was the only big movement that I felt part of, you know, wholeheartedly felt part of and, and was, in fact, part of... But, uh, and, and so up until the time I um, followed up the f- story that the first stone tells yeah. and, uh, and interviewed so many people and, and sort of hated the kind of punitive nature of the feminism that was sort of on parade in those days. I, um, and then after the book was published and I was absolutely shit canned and kicked around the block. Uh, I thought, after that, I thought, okay, well, you know, when I pick myself up and dust myself off and I thought, hey, it's not too bad out here. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not speaking for anyone anymore. They've basically shown me the door. So I thought, okay, I'm out here and the sky is blue and I can feel the breeze (laughs) and I can say what Uh, I think now. And
0: be more and say more.
1: Yeah, and and stick my neck out. And I said, okay, I stuck my neck out and they tried to chop it off and it didn't. You know, there was a tiny strand of spine left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which was talking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this goes back to emotion. I think one of the things that people find. Frightening and exasperating about what you do is that you insist on uh, the affect as you go, if I can put it like that. It reminds me of a, a, a passage in Joe Cinque's *Consolation* when you're describing Anu Singh in the dock, and you talk about her putting up her hair, and it's it's a passage that really gets to you because you refuse to describe her without including a sense that she has killed someone yeah so even as you just go through those sort of ordinary physical details of her doing her hair patting herself on the head literally yeah smoothing her her broad smooth you know her head um you fill that with feeling Mm -hmm. and i think for tertiary educated people this is hard because it comes up against this this sense that if you want to describe something if you want to think you better get rid of any strong feeling one way or the other it's trained out of us Um, and the thing that makes your writing so different is that you're saying look i'm going to present to you the strong feeling that i have and then after that i'll have an argument with myself in front of you about whether or not i get
1: to keep it Exactly. That's exactly the point. I mean, if I if I put that stuff in there without examining myself about having put it in there, yeah. then it would be like, you know, I'd be just, yes. um, then, then you just, know, a just banging son. a drum pointlessly yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and showing off and saying, you know, I'm different from you and, and fuck you. And I don't feel like that. I, I feel um, there, there's a kind of fruitful struggle to be ha- had there. and And, of course, there were in those journals that I kept over the years of writing about those two trials, um, I um, I wrote down plenty of things that that I would not have said in public. I mean, I'd get home from court and I'd blurt out all this stuff into the journal, really ugly stuff, you know, fury and 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 disgust and contempt and 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 I thought, you know, I'd go back and when I was writing the book, I'd think, no, this is awful. This is um, crude. It's like you know the sort of id that comes pouring out. And I, and I thought it was ugly and pointless, and so I didn't use it. But uh, I, I, there was some of it because, because you know, I thought, hey, that's well written. I'll put that in. I thought that's not a good enough reason. You know, there's got to be better reason than just because it's a good sentence, yeah. especially if it if it's ugly and, um, and and you know abusive. I could, you know, I was in a rage with people sometimes, yeah. and I think it would be, uh, you know, pointlessly aggressive and. And um, spiteful. And what's the technical
0: control of that like? I was struck, I think you've said this in public, or I might have read it in Bernadette Brennan's book, that you had to, you wrote, is it what, 60, 70,000 words of this house of grief, and then had to put them aside. They were just wrong. Mm. Um, what, what is that? Is that because you're not controlling what is a good too much emotion in the wrong way?
1: What can go wrong? No, I think it was mainly that I didn't have um, I didn't have a kind of structural handle on the thing, but um, I hadn't figured out how to tell how to tell it. I hadn't got the right tone. Mm. It's a matter of tone probably, and that's a technical thing. Mm. It's also an emotional thing, but it's a matter of um, you know examining what you're putting on the page. Um, or, you know, this sounds phony, but kind of in a musical way.
0: Yes, because uh, the start of this House of Grief is so remarkably good in that you cast it um, away from yourself a little more than the beginnings of some of your other books. You say, yeah. look, once upon a time, here was this bloke. You sort of bring a bit of fable in, but yeah. then sort of push it away as you go. How did you, do you remember coming across that?
1: Well, I, see, I spent a lot of time... Uh, when I was going through all this torture time and not knowing how to write the book and, you know, writing lots of it and thinking this mm-hmm. is crap, mm-hmm. um, I, I kept, it, there was a sort of country and western feel to the thing and I thought, gee, this could be, when I think about poor old Robbie Farquharson, you know, he's kind of there's sort of something whingy about his nature and a bit sort of browbeaten and hollowed out and... I thought, oh, it's a bit like one of those songs. And then when I when I thought that, I thought, yeah, you could tell, instead of writing this whole goddamn book, I could write a song if I knew how to. Yeah. If I had a guitar and could play it. Yeah. But um,
0: although I'd say a song couldn't really get to um, no. what you got to <laughs> in those words.
1: But but then the other thing that happened was okay, so I started it off. Um, uh, by the way, that wasn't the original opening. I don't remember what the original opening was. Mm. That, that the idea for that opening came to me way later in the process. Yeah. So, so I set it up like a song, mm. and then, then I thought, then I flashed back to <coughs> something that somebody said to me when the first stone came out. The very first public event I ever did about the first stone was at the MCA in Sydney. This is back in I don't know ninety five or whenever it was. And it was a very angry audience. It was a huge audience of angry women, feminists. And uh, you know, I stood up and I was squeaking out my pathetic mm-hmm. justifications. Mm-hmm. And this woman got up and she said, "I'd like to know what is your speaking position?" And I'd never heard that expression before, and I said, "Whats this?" I said completely sincerely, mm-hmm. I said, "What's the speaking position?" And she kind of rolled her eyes at the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Well, this is it. We all
0: know in the inner city.
1: Yeah. Well, see, I didn't know. That's the other thing, because I'm slightly older than most of the generation of inner city smart asses that you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Who (laughs) don't don't get most of the good jobs done, but anyway.
1: (laughs) But um, I, I thought... Right near the beginning of, of, of the Ferguson book, I thought, okay, well, i better state my speaking position, because it was actually a useful question. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, well, yes, a person could state their position. So I thought, okay, what is my position? Okay, I'm a woman of such and such an age. I've been divorced. I've married and divorced several times. Mm-hmm. I understand and have, I've have both inflicted and endured the pain of divorce. And I, but, I put, but I didn't want to sort of put this like a little lecture at the front. So I described me and my friend, who'd just been dumped by a husband of many years and had dyed her hair of flaming red, and we got in the car and drove down to the country to look at the landscape, which both of us knew very well because we'd been there as girls. And I thought, here's my chance, here's where I can put this in. We're sitting on the grass, having um, been to the cemetery or searched in the cemetery, and uh, I thought, okay, here we are. What are we? We're two women who blah blah blah. And so that, so I realised after I'd written that that thing, I thought, ah, that's it. That's my well, speaking. So interesting. That's because I think
0: what she meant was, where are you in some bigger structure, some bigger virtuous or some oppressive structure? Uh-huh, and I, I think this is, goes back to the problems maybe of, of my generation, where I think we were taught um, at university to be allergic. the to the individual and to the individual emotional we were taught that it would get in the way of looking at and finding bigger structures that would really explain what society was and what it should be so the last thing anyone um i think amongst the people who i went to with the university the last way they would answer that question is with a pretty straightforwardly honest uh, account of what the individual circumstances were, they like would think what? that they would think that was illegitimate.
1: Oh, I see. So, yeah. but what, what might they have said? How would they you might have said, say, "Well, what what I'm do? a
0: white man," or oh, right. oh, "I'm now a I middle class person, oh, some sort of bigger." Yes. So you, yeah. you have to place yourself in, in some bigger group. Which, and this is the thing I think you're writing fights against again and again that that's a sufficient explanation for what and who you are.
1: Oh, now I get it. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. So that locks into all that identity. Stuff that everyone's going on yes, about that you yes, can't yes, write, possibly yes, write yes, about yes, a black person if you're
0: white. Yes, um, yeah. and it's 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 a big it's sort of a, a big poignant problem I think for everybody who want, who cares about literature because. On the one hand, you have to bow your head to mm-hmm. the idea to the that, that you are part of a group that has been privileged. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know that that's not enough of an explanation mm-hmm. for what you are, for what that other person in the room is. There's this stubbornly individual amount of information that keeps going where maybe the person who's not from the privileged group is also a shit and a fool. And you've got to have the right to sort of say that. You've got to keep describing... The human surplus, as James Wood put it, when he was writing about your work, you get to the human surplus.
1: Yeah. God, this is really interesting. Well, I thought the speaking position was rather more like saying, um, you know, this has been my life experience. uh, And this is what I I feel, um, in a sense, it's not that this gives, not that I meant in that scene with my redheaded friend, that it gave me the right to write the story, but it was going to tell the reader what I knew about the sort of suffering that I was going to describe, particularly that this man had gone through, this brokenhearted guy who'd been kicked out by his wife. He didn't really know why. And he was, um, I thought, I'll just say, okay, I've got some, I've got some, background in this. I know what these feelings are. And so I feel that that gives me at least way into talking about it. But so now I see that it's not really speaking position at all.
0: Well, um, <laughs> look, people can, people can write in the comment section underneath this if I've, if I've got it wrong. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else, which is the way in which you fought for the more individual in your work from book to book. I, I was um, struck by how you didn't just do it because it was the only thing you could do. What's really moving is, is that in the early part of your of your writing career, you actually do master the other system, which is the more orthodox, realist fiction system. You work and work to produce a book like The Children's Bark and then sort of push on to make even a sort of a, a variant kind of fiction in Cosmo, Cosmolino, something that's more decorated, something that's more of an art fiction. Um, but then what, something seems to happen between Cosmo Cosmolino and The First Stone where you found out that doing the work, which you could do to make a realist fiction, in some sense wasn't worth the work. The Children's Bark is, a, is an exquisitely made book. It's not, that it, it's not that it proved technically beyond you to do it. But something happened where ever since The First Stone, the principle seems to be it has to drive out from you putting yourself in the story, you almost treating yourself with the freedom that a fictional character is treated with, yeah, but you have to put something close to yourself in there, you you seem to almost have a a need to go beyond a conventional realism by forcing it always back to to autobiography without it turning into autobiography.
1: Yeah, well, I... That's a complex thing. I I think um, whenever I think about something, just say something happens or a thought occurs to me or a series of um, actions or a person come to my attention, I think, oh, I'd like to write something about that. And my initial urge is always to write in first person. And I I feel that to be a kind of um, a limitation in a sense, but... I also know that that's the power that I've got. Um, and I, I feel as if over those few books I, particularly Joe Wei and... Um, What's it called? <laughs> this yeah. House of Grief. Yeah. Uh, that I, I... I would like to think that I've actually refined the, the use of myself so that it's not really sort of about me. I'm just using mm. myself as a, as a kind of... Um, Uh, it's really hard to think of a way of talking about this, that it's sort of, in a sense, a sort of disembodied... um, It's not disembodied, because I'm always talking about bodies. Um, Some kind of um, knot or locus of of energy Mm -hmm. that that I can bounce around inside the story like a ball on a pool table, you know. It gets a whack and it hits and it comes back. And... um, and, I, and that's useful to me, you know, I, I, because because of the responses that I'm having to the things that are happening in the court or the sort you know, the, look, I'm just suddenly thinking about that young teenage boy who was in the court uh, in the second and um, trial. And he was saying yeah, to me, oh, you oh, yeah, I can tell that that witness is lying. Yeah. And I was furious. I could have killed him. I thought, you twerp! Have you been in here five minutes and you know everything? But I thought, there's no point saying that. I'll just let him say what he says. And... Um, And I'll I'll sort of insinuate my responses into the sort of tone of how I told it. You know, I think I refer to him as Young Master Fethorston or whatever. That's it, that's it. But, I mean, you can have a lot of fun doing that to figure out how to sort of get get that, you know, that sort of little muscle bouncing in the right place.
0: The two new collections are Stories, which is the short stories, and the collection of the essays is True Stories. Helen, thanks so much for, for talking to us this morning.
1: Thanks, Sean.